Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City. On this show, we explore emerging trends and important policy issues across cities and countries and ask, how could this work in Baltimore? We change a conversation from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. When many of us think of the modern workplace, we start thinking about the images we've seen of Facebook or Google headquarters, open floor plans, foosball tables, designer beanbag chairs, or maybe we don't picture an office at all. We picture someone telecommuting from home in their pajamas. But do either of these images reflect the reality of the modern workplace? And what trends are emerging that are changing our conceptions about the needs of workers in the 21st century? Contrary to common belief, a 2018 study by Harvard Business School found that open offices reduce face-to-face interaction by about 70% and increase email and messaging by roughly 50%. The physical space employees occupy has a huge impact on well-being, productivity, and retention rates. Even small changes can have a big impact. Cardiff University School of Psychology led a 2014 field experiment that found adding houseplants to an office made employees 15% more productive. Memory performance and general well-being also improved which jives with research that has found plants can reduce symptoms of physiological stress in humans. But maybe employees don't want an office at all, open or not. After all, the latest data says that 85% of millennials want full-time remote opportunities, and 82% expressed higher loyalty to a company with a remote full-time option. So what's the future of our workplaces? That's the topic of today's show. We're going to be focusing in on the emergence of co-working spaces and flexible work arrangements that allow for greater work-life balance as well as potentially greater productivity. First to join us is John Hurdle, who's an experienced journalist who has reported for a number of publications, including the New York Times, where he recently authored a fantastic article entitled, Boutique Co-Working Spaces Find a Niche Nurturing Small Businesses. John joins us over the phone. John, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, you're welcome, Wes. So I, I want to first uh, have you start with a few definitions. What do people mean when they're talking about a co-working space? Well, the essential idea is, this, that, is that this is shared office space. Rather than having um, uh, the traditional closed spaces that are, that are for the exclusive use of, uh, of whoever has rented the space in the building, um, uh, the uh, folks who, uh, who pay to be, be members of a, um, uh, of a co-working space um, uh, generally have uh, common desks, common areas in which they, in which they um, uh, they they interact and they and they set up their uh, their computers and so on on, on the uh, on the shared tables or or uh, sofas um, in the uh, in the common spaces. Uh, they also share office equipment. Um, they share conference space, um, and, and that's the that's the those are the physical uh, things which are shared. Uh, but what folks will tell you is that they uh, they have a 
uh, that they are also sharing um, ideas uh, and contacts um, and uh, and and possibly opportunities to build up their own small businesses. Uh, and, and those are things that you wouldn't necessarily find in a traditional office environment. And, and so when people, it sounds like when people first hear the idea of, uh, you know, of, of, of trendy office or, or, or co-working, you know, I think oftentimes people who are not familiar immediately go to think about the movies or, you know, Google or Facebook where they have the beanbag chairs and the foosball tables and, uh, and, this, and riding skateboards, you know, through big open spaces. But that's not exactly what we're discussing here, or, or is it? cases it is. I mean, in terms of the, uh, the uh, co-working uh, spaces uh, that I uh, got, became familiar with during the course of reporting this story, um, I, I think there is a certain amount of what you would call uh, uh, beanbags. Uh, you, you might characterize it as, as the beanbag bag factor involved in this. Um, and so, uh, you know, people will have people. Uh, these spaces may offer things like free tea and coffee. Uh, some of them may offer free beer. Uh, there might be um, uh, there might be ping pong um, or there might be, um, uh, you know, people might even be allowed to bring their their dogs to work. Um, but the uh, the essential point about uh, about these spaces, according to the folks that I spoke with, uh, is that they are um, that they are primarily productive work. They're designed to be productive workspaces, even though they have this. Some of them have this kind of freewheeling atmosphere, which is a a, a clear alternative to the traditional office environment. Um, they are designed. For, for people to work and to develop their businesses, whether they're uh, sole operator freelancers or whether they're small startups with half a dozen employees. The, these spaces are designed to, uh, to provide those people to, uh, with a, a, a congenial environment to, um, to build up their businesses. And so what differentiates a small co-working operator like, like you know, the one you visited versus some of the larger ones, like uh, like a WeWork or or Regis. Well, I, I think what the folk, what uh, the, the uh, members of the smaller spaces will tell you is that there is a um, well, that there is more of a um, a, a sense of scale, a smaller, a, a, a more limited environment, and possibly a more. Um, a distinctly local environment. Um, I mean, one of the uh, places that I talked to uh, was um, operated by a Pittsburgh-based company called Beauty Shop, uh, which uh, sounds like it could be a, co- a cosmetics firm, but in fact it's not. It's a, uh, it's a real estate firm. Um, and they've got seven locations in Pittsburgh, um, one of which uh, is, is known as the Detective Building because it was the uh, former uh, Detective Bureau for the Pittsburgh police department and so it's been renovated um and uh, and it has it's retained its local flavor and um uh some of the folks that i talked to appreciated the fact that this that they were um that they felt that the the, the distinctively local nature of this of this physical building a uh, kind of it reinforced their sense of belonging and their sense that they are that they were there in pittsburgh um uh, as opposed to some of these larger spaces, which are, m- are more likely to be uh, homogenized. So I thought one of the really interesting components of, of of your work and your writing really did emphasize on that local flavor. 
um, and, you know, kind of the local, uh, very, very familiar emphasis that these places took on the environments in which they were located. Uh, whether you're talking about Pittsburgh, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, you know Lincoln, Nebraska, anywhere, uh, what are some of the threads that you see about some of these places and how they really try to hold true to that idea of local flavor? Well, I think uh, if we're if we're talking about the uh, about the uh, the Lincoln location, I, I mean th- that is uh, one of the things that that establishment emphasizes is its uh, is its links to the local business community. Um, and I was speaking with uh, Bob Hinricks, the uh, one the, the co-founder of this uh, of the Lincoln location, which is called Fuse. Um, and he said he viewed uh, when he set the uh, the space up seven years ago, um, he viewed it as um, uh, not only uh, a place for community development but also economic development. Um, and and throughout that seven year period, he is he says he has uh, maintained uh, strong links with the local business community, um, and and they bought into the idea of this. Um, uh, that uh, that the co-working space is good for their economic environment because because uh, nurturing startups, uh, which of course is a, you know, is one of the things that smaller co-working spaces uh, or co-working spaces in general uh, are good at, um, nurturing startups is actually good for economic growth, uh, and so uh, and so that's one uh, one uh, respect one way in which the uh, the the local uh, in which the, uh, a smaller co-working space uh, can feel it uh, can can be rooted to its local community. So, as we've talked about what some of these assets and virtues are, and I think you know her story is, is a great example of that, um, and the level of growth. What do you think are some of the greatest threats to this growth of uh, of, of, of co-working spaces? Well, uh, uh, I was. Um, I, Speaking with a, with a developer uh, of a, uh, a co-working space in um, in Philadelphia, uh, the, uh, the so this developer is uh, is developing um, fifty thousand square feet of um, of office space in downtown Philadelphia for uh, for Regis actually, of course, which of course is one of the big mm-hmm. operators in this space. Um, and uh, and 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 his argument was that it was gonna that uh, even though there's this strong growth in in the uh, co-working industry overall, um, and uh, and in particular in this uh, in this so-called boutique space, um, that uh, the likelihood is that these spaces are going to be uh, that the that the boutique spaces uh, are going to become steadily homogenized. Um, over time, and the reason for that is that um, uh, that uh, major corporations that seek to, um, uh, to to base their employees in these smaller spaces are, are going to be looking inevitably for a standardized um, uh, product um, and uh, they 're going to in other words they 're going to want to know exactly what uh, what to expect for their what conditions they 're going to get for their employees whether they 're whether they're in uh, Philadelphia or Seattle or uh, New Orleans or wherever it might be, um, uh, and the other part of the argument is that there is um, that uh, investors in the co-working industry um, are, are are going to be uh, 
looking for returns, and the best way of getting those returns is to provide the services which are uh, which are sought by um, by major corporations. And so, so this was um, this was seen as a possibly uh, a, a way of you know the it, the this is a projection for the way that the boutique uh, co-working industry might uh, might evolve over time. It's interesting how you see uh, the the picture that you just painted in some ways is a, is a perfect illustration of kind of the, uh, you know, the old becoming new and the new becoming old again, because you really also just kind of epitomize the growth of the large corporate spaces that then took place decades ago and how, you know, the potential threat to these ideas of these smaller co-working local flavor places are essentially the return, them turning into essentially what they are replacing. Yes, indeed, that's right. Uh, and so they, um, they may become placating uh, their larger uh, brethren. We don't know yet. We've been speaking with journalist John Hurdle. Uh, John, this is absolutely fascinating, and your work is great around it. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. Coming up, we'll speak with Amy Nelson, the founder and CEO of The Riveter, a work and community space operative built by women with women's needs in mind. Stay tuned. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fidler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back to Future City. I am Wes Moore, and I am so excited to be joined now uh, by Amy Nelson, who is the founder and CEO of Riverter, uh, a work and community spaces built by women for all. And she previously served on President Obama's National Finance Committee and also worked with President Carter's The Carter Center and is a sought-after advisor and speaker. Amy, we are thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Wes. It's great to be here. So let's first start talking about Riveter. What exactly is it? Uh, you know, when did you find it uh, and why? Yeah, I mean, I built the Riveter, I think, in the most simple way because I needed it. So we're a network of community and workspaces built by women for everyone. And what that means is that we are building spaces where we think about women first uh, and what the challenges are in women's work lives, whether that's, you know, an in-house job or they're starting their own company. And then we bring everyone into it, because if we want to change the future of work for everyone, I think that we need all genders to be uh, in on that movement. And so on your site, you say, and I, and I love this, you say you help design works, work spaces for, quote, the way women work, end quote. Uh, what are the unique needs uh, that women have in the workplace that are so often overlooked? Yeah, I mean, I think from a physical standpoint, what we do in our co-working spaces is that we build a lot more open space. Your traditional co-working spaces, if you can call co-working traditional yet, uh, tend to be almost all offices. So women are working differently. So on the one hand, it's fascinating because women are starting businesses five times the rate of men. But on the other hand, we're working really differently. About 85% of women who start businesses are solo entrepreneurs. 
So they're not out there building venture-scale enterprises with 50 or 100 employees. They're building their own consultancies. They're you know, launching their own business where it's just them. And so when we thought about how that group of people worked, we realized that women wanted more opportunity to interact and collaborate. So our spaces are about 70% open and 30% private offices. And then on top of that, you know, what I really needed when I was thinking about starting a business was to talk to other women who had taken the journey before me. Um, it's helpful also to talk to men, but as a woman in the mid, now late, admittedly 30, um, I really wanted to talk to women who had taken the leap. And so we bring in a lot of speakers to talk to our members who have started businesses or are really risen in the corporate ranks. And that's everyone from Cheryl Sandberg to Jane Fonda. We brought in Senator Tammy Duckworth, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Senator Tina Smith, many senators. Um, and then we do a lot of connecting. We think about the hurdles that women face that are different. One of the things we know on the side of entrepreneurship is that women get fewer small business loans. Only 4% of small business loan dollars go to women. And women also get less of the venture capital um, funding that's available, only 2%. So then in that instance, we bring in bank loan officers. We bring in venture capital investors to talk to women. I'm not a social scientist, and I don't know why this funding disparity exists, but I think that we can change it. And I think one of the ways we change it is by putting people in front of one another that aren't normally in front of one another. So I, I think that's a really important point, and I, and I want to touch on that for a second because we, we talk about the fact that, you know, women start uh, businesses at five times the rate of men, but the access to capital, the basic, mm-hmm. the basic building blocks that it takes to have these businesses grow and thrive and become sustainable, uh, it is far more difficult for women to be able to get access to that capital. What are the type of things, when you're having people coming in and, and, uh, and, and spending time and working with these, working with these, these female entrepreneurs, what are the type of practical things that can be put in place, and how should people be thinking differently about that to make sure that we can begin to close that gap? I think one of the things at a very base level is that women don't have the same networks that men do. So women's networks tend to be narrower and deeper. So we have fewer relationships, but deeper relationships where men tend to cast a really wide and shallow network. And that's social science, not me. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what we try to do is broaden our members' networks to include more people because so much of raising money and what I found in my own journey of raising money is it's really, it's a numbers game. It's talking to as many people as possible and building those relationships. And the other piece of it is I think women lack as much access to information. If you think about it, women couldn't get mortgages on our own 40 years ago. So it's really unsurprising to me that we don't have all of the information about applying for a small business loan or talking to a bank. And so we bring in bank loan officers to give that information to our members. And I think the more people become comfortable with it, the more likely we are to get past stage one and stage two. On the venture capital side, I think it is, again, once again, largely about networks. But I also think there, I think there is a ton of um, pattern recognition and implicit bias because we haven't seen many women build billion-dollar companies. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is lack of access to funding, so it's this circle and how do you fix it. And I'm really amazed by all the efforts, like all raise um, and women focus on focusing on funding women, but at the same time, over 90% of VC investors are men. So I'm really focused on getting male investors in front of female founders, Mm. because if you see that more female founders again and again, you can't tell me it's a pipeline problem because it's not. Women have amazing ideas. Uh, and, And hopefully we can break down those biases just simply by being in the same room more. And I think women also have have 
access to the mindset and the frames around where the largest, who has actually actually has the largest amount of purchasing power inside of the home, which is yeah. actually women. I know it's women control something like eighty seven percent of all consumer spending. And That's right. We dictate so much of what happens in the economy, yet we aren't in control in the way that I think we should be. So I think one of the other uh, one of the other concerns for for working women that working women face uh, is that also that conundrum uh, that often comes with being a working mother. Um, so yes, how do you I think know that, that one well? <laughs> so 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 how are your workspaces helping to ease ease that tension? And how much of your personal experience actually went into how you went about the design? Yeah, a lot. So I um, I have three daughters, and I am pregnant with my fourth daughter. So oh, I only congrats. have little girls, and I have a lot of them. <laughs> so <laughs> now this is really, you know, this is the puzzle piece of my life that I think about so much. Um, and one of, one of the ways that we work to help parents um, and women do remain the primary caretakers in America is that we welcome babies in arms up to six months, and we do that for both our members and uh, the women employees. I think it's really important to do that. And then we also provide partnerships with off-site child care providers. So we don't have on-site child care, um, but we do have discounts and other perks for off-site child care providers. So trying to really ease that burden for our members who are also parents. I mean, it's really stunning to me. I was reading Lean In some time ago when I was still lawyering and thinking about my next step. And there's a footnote in Lean In that tells us that 43% of highly trained professional women off-ramp after they have kids. Hmm. And to me, I thought, if this is true, it means the system is completely broken. We all know it, and we're not doing anything about it. And so I think the other piece that we're really working on is working with corporations. So we, we don't really have a lot of corporations who you know, house 100 of their employees in our spaces. We're still smaller and new, and we aren't built that way. However, we do work with corporations on programming to talk about how to integrate the workplace, how not to lose them, because it's an enormous inefficiency in the market for companies. And so when you think about and when you're going about selecting uh, which cities to grow in, which places that you want to be in, what are some target metrics that you look for to decide what a good place is? Yeah. So we, we are really excited this year that we're focused on the middle of the country. I am uh, a child born of the middle of the country. I, I was raised in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and I think that there is enormous opportunity in cities all over Texas, in Atlanta, in Minneapolis, where you have growing populations, a lot of really interesting companies who've chosen to headquarter there, and great populations of women starting businesses. Hmm. So we look at kind of those three different metrics. Um, I think, too, you know, this isn't a hard metric, but there are a lot of resources on the coast that we don't have in the middle of the country. And we need to find a way to get more resources to people who are building businesses there and who want to stay in corporate America because they're the engine of our economy as well. And so when you say that you look at the middle of America uh, and you think about that's also places where significant growth can, uh, you know, can can come from. Do you think that the middle of the country, particularly when it comes to to entrepreneurship, female entrepreneurship, has been has been systemically and systematically overlooked as a real avenue of opportunity for women? I do. So I think when you, when you look at it from the entrepreneurial side, particularly on the venture side, the venture capital funds are clustered on the coast, both in San Francisco and L.A., yep. some in Seattle, uh, also in Boston and New York. Um, there are some amazing funds that are growing in the middle of the country, as well as venture investors who are focused in the middle of the country, like Steve Case. Um, 
but there is enormous opportunity. There hasn't been enough funding in these areas. And it's also when you wonder why, because you look at some of the great American companies, they have come from the middle of the country. And so I think it's how do you get more funding to these cities so the next generation of great American companies can grow in, in these amazing cities where I think one of the things that's worth noting and one of the reasons I'm really focused on it is the cost of living makes a lot more sense for most people in the middle of the country. Mm. So if you fuel growth economically through incredible companies in the middle of the country, you know, you're, you're giving people a better shot because there's a better um, cost of living to income ratio. How much of this also is a, is a conversation around, uh, around education and, and, and risk-taking? Right. Because I think, you know, part of it is, is that, you know, at what point do we start? You know, we aren't always very good as a large society about nurturing that sense of risk taking amongst our daughters, amongst women. You know, there, there, there's a conversation that oftentimes takes place for, for female entrepreneurs about how, how they're looking at their life in almost these, these, these spans. Well, this, this area of your life or this chapter of your life is more about, uh, you know, raising a family. This area is more about than your kids are mm-hmm. at X age versus men never have those conversations. Men are never forced to have those conversations. So how much of this is also about kind of the education frame and, and, the, and the risk-taking frame that, you know, that, that all entrepreneurs must nurture, but we don't always nurture amongst our, our, our girls? I think it's an enormously important part of the conversation, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, Rush Masuzani, who started Girls Who Code, um, has started a really important conversation. And, and what she says, you know, is that we teach our girls to be good and nice and kind, and we teach our boys to be brave. And that is how kids are socialized from the very beginning. And so we really need to start at a young age talking about different stories and not you know, basing what we encourage our kids to do based on gender. And so there's that, there's that end of it. And on the other side, you know, I, about, I have an interesting perspective. So I was a litigator and worked on Wall Street for a long time. So I was in very male-dominated rooms and courtrooms. Hmm. Uh, and I think I saw a lot of risk-taking and high-risk behavior in those arenas and became more, way more used to it than I would have had I not been in that particular environment. And I think that has definitely played into what I've done. Um, but something else that has played into what I've done is that I have a partner and my husband who who not only encourages my risk-taking but tells me to take bigger risks. <laughs> but I think, and I think that's, you know... Um, and I think that's part of it, too, right, is, is the partnerships that we build. I think it's also worth saying that I feel like I stand in a place of great privilege and that, you know, I was born in this country. I am white. And I was born to a middle-class family where my parents were able to pay for me to go to college. Mm. So I started pretty close to home base. And women in America, there's an enormous wage gap. Mm. And you can't just go start a company without having a financial safety net. And we don't talk about that a lot, but women have less of a financial safety net. And so this problem has to be solved in from so many different ways, right? Like white women still make 78 cents to a man's dollar, women of color, it's remarkably less. We have to solve that problem too if we want these brilliant women to be able to go out and start companies. I think it's uh, the, what you're able to do, uh, not just in terms of providing space, but also changing the psychology around this is so crucial. And it's so incredibly important. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, one of the also one of the fascinating things I, I, I learned about your model is that, you know, your workplaces are also just becoming centers of community. Right. I mean, like so, you know, mm-hmm. you can be a part of Riveter without actually renting office space. Correct. Yes, absolutely. We have a lot of members who 
our community members and that they don't use the Riveter to work. They come to our programming. And I think, um, you know, that is an amazing piece of what we're doing because it welcomes in people to talk about the hurdles of business and their life uh, without, you know, using us as a traditional co-working space. And so for all of our listeners here uh, who might not have uh, either heard of it or don't have a Riveter close, how can listeners learn more about Riveter? And then how do we convince Riveter to come to the Baltimore region? <laughs> well, we want to come to Baltimore. Um, it, it's a matter of, of when and, and how. All right. Um, but you can find out more at our website, which is www.theriveter.co. We also um, just started a newsletter uh, where we are you know, talking about really important topics around women and work. So we're really proud to be able to interact with people all over the world via this newsletter. Um, and you can, of course, follow us on social across all of our channels at the Riveter CO. And so, Amy, last question. Uh, the name. I love the name. Where's, where's it come from? The Riveter uh, is a nod to Rosie the Riveter. Um, and that amazing generation of women who during World War II answered the call to go to work while men were fighting and who kept our industries alive. I think it's really, I looked at it as a time period when American women defined the workforce, and I want that to be the reality again. Amy Nelson, the founder and CEO of The Riveter. Amy, you make us all better. Thanks so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you so much. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, in the last segment of our show, we're zooming in on our city, Baltimore. A city that's teeming with artists, tech innovators, and entrepreneurs. All the creative talent in our city demands a creative workspace. And we'll learn about Spark Baltimore, a unique co-working space right here in town that caters to startups and large corporations alike. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. If you're just joining in, this is Future City, and I am Wes Moore, and I am absolutely thrilled to be joined now by Siobhan Cherry, who's the Director of Community and Partnerships at Spark Baltimore. Siobhan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So first, can we start with uh, explaining to everybody just what Spark Baltimore is? Spark Baltimore is collaborative co-working space. Um, We're actually the marriage of hospitality and entrepreneurship with those two things pairing together to create a collaborative workspace for individuals and startups and small businesses. So I want to ask a question just about the basic layout of Spark. If I walk into Spark now, what is going to look different than if I walked into a traditional office building a decade ago? So with Spark, we really value spaces for people to really be creative and collaborate in. So you won't find a cube farm. Um, you won't find really um, small offices that people can be sardined in, which you would traditionally see in an office space. Um, small offices, cube farms, um, gray muted colors, you know, things like that. Um, we really want to make sure that we're igniting and sparking 
pun intended, um, innovation within the members that are in the space. So um, when you walk in, it's very open, airy. We utilized um, a glass a wall system, so that way the natural light that's coming in, people can really take advantage of that within the space. And um, we designed it specifically that you can have, um, everyone works very differently. So some people want the quiet moments. Some people want to be in a, a large, open sort of bullpen area. So we've specifically designed the space where we have a mix of the private offices that can be very quiet off to themselves. And then we have open, dedicated desk areas for those individuals that really want to be out in the open, collaborating, connecting with people close to the kitchen, close to the common areas. So we we were very intentional in how we planned out the space because everyone works differently. Not everyone wants to, um, you know, be next to the 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 shared kitchen and the meeting rooms. Um, we want to be very um, we want to be very focused and intentional in how we support our individuals and companies in the spaces. And we bring the same sort of look and feel that we have on our co-working floors to our graduated offices um, on our higher floors. So as a company, maybe they started out with a single office and now they've graduated to uh, a suite on our fifth floor. We want that same look and feel, those same sort of soft touches where they have um, built-in phone booths for the, in their space or a small meeting room. But um, they can also have kind of have that... that um, parallel of being in that co-working space into their their workspace. And that also means that, that it doesn't it's not confined to the traditional nine to five either. It's like this is a building that if you have access, you have access 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. seven days a week. You choose what time you work. Exactly. Exactly. Our business hours are 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's when our staff is there. We have concierge mail service that we get your packages for you, um, ha- assisting any of you guests or meeting rooms, booking meeting rooms for you. But our members have 24-7 access to the space because entrepreneurship is 24-7. Sure. Small business is 24-7. Um, most of our members um, are there during our core business hours, but there are uh, quite a few that I kind of joke that I, I rarely see them because they're they're working their full-time job and then they're coming in to work on their, quote, side hustle, hence their, their next um, big idea in our space. Um, so, and that sort of flexibility um, makes a spark really appealing for the spark, for the Baltimore community. Um, being able to support your personal goals um, while you still can maintain your full-time job or your part-time job, and then you can slowly sort of shift over. Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. Um, There's nothing wrong with working the nine to five, but for those who really want to set forth and be on their own and and take and join the ranks of entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, um, you really need that drive and the energy, but you also need a support system. And that's what Spark is there for. It's not just your your kind of place to put your hat, but it's people that you can connect with, people you can talk with, people who are going to provide you with networking opportunities and can get you connected um, with those who may support. Um, myself and our staff are always sort of keeping our ear to the ground. If there's an individual who's actively looking for funding, well, what can we do to help bring some funding funding options to them? Who are some state um, organizations or city organizations that we can support them and bring them to the table to achieve their goals? So I, I think that's what really makes Spark appealing, not just with the, the flow of the space and the design of the space, but also the community aspect. Um, and that's what we really try to focus on. So who is actually at Spark? What type of company, what type of entrepreneur, what type of element looks at a place like Spark and says, this should be my home? 
Oh, we're a pretty diverse workspace, to be perfectly honest. Um, a lot of times you'll see in the area there'll be sort of silos of cybersecurity or health tech. Um, we're a combination of everything. We have solo entrepreneurs that they have a desk in our space and they basically work their nine to five and they come in after hours. And one person. One person just at a desk, hitting the grind, um, um, building their own sort of small business idea. And that spans to a 75-person company that is um, our, their U.S. global headquarters here in, in Baltimore. Um, so it's a wide range. We have about re- represent about 16 different industries from health technology, ed tech, design, uh, software development, um, and nonprofit, for-profit, and government contractors. And so if I have a company and I'm looking to find space, what how do you recruit me? What's the sell to get me to choose to go to Spark? Well, we're a very collaborative community in Baltimore and, and within our own space and within the Baltimore space. So we're not trying to sort of sell us over one particular co-working space because if we're not the right fit, there's other spaces in Baltimore that can be. But for Spark, um, we really focus on um, if you're actively looking for funding or you just graduated from an accelerator space, um, our focus is flexibility. You can easily go from a mailbox to a desk to an office to a suite as your company grows. Mm-hmm. Um, I know with my personal experience, my previous company, um, we had four different mailing addresses in five years because every time we hired five people, we had to go to a new building. So with this, with our space, you can have the same mailing address, the same amenities, the same resources, that same familiarity of your workspace, um, but within the same, you know, space. Um, and you don't have to worry about where are they sending our, you know, our checks to or where are we um, going to be moving our team. You can really have that flexibility of growing. Or long-term leases. And... Exactly. We call it graduating in Spark. So we have actually six floors um, within our space. So companies can start with a desk to an office. If they're so successful and they get funding or they just hired 20 people, they can graduate up to a long-term lease. That's a typical corporate um, three- to five-year lease. Are your offices in Spark? Yes. I'm literally, <laughs> when you come right in, you'll see um, we have a, a really great sort of look and feel vibe, glass front system, a modern um, millennial feel, I guess, if you want to call it. Um, even though I'm a millennial myself, the word is so overused. Um, but it, our, our offices are right here. Um, we're, we're, you don't find us off site. We want to be where our community is. So you live it. I live it, live it, breathe it. Um, I always joke with our members, I'll come in, our staff is on site, we have our community manager on site, our first impression coordinator is the first thing you see when you come off the elevator. Um, And they're there to support the community with whether it's, hey, I'm really looking for a great um, uh, lunch spot for my clients that just flew in from New York, or... I really need a hotel for this, or can you help me with um, this, you know, legal question? And we'll get if we don't know the answer, we'll find someone who can help them with that. So, what other type of amenities? So, it sounds like you have very almost like almost like a personalized concierge service that you have for the people yeah. who are there. What other type of amenities? do you guys have there? So, and that's where that marriage of hospitality and entrepreneurship comes in. Um, so we, obviously, you, you when you think of, you know, modern workspaces, you have the beer fridge and, you know, all of that fun stuff, ping pong. Um, we do have beer and wine on tap, which a lot of people come in and they're like, whoa, what's going on here? But, <laughs> you know, these companies, they are growing. They're really trying to um, have talent retention. Maybe they just closed a really great deal. And, you know, if you want to have a brew at, you know, four o'clock when you've had a long day that works well but um, other things that are really important other than the beer and wine obviously Um, but we have a mother's room uh, on site so we have working moms who need to come on 
need, they need a pump, they need a private space to do that. Um, so we provide a, a separate space um, so our working moms can can have that privacy. Um, meditation space, so there's some members on the site that may have um, relaxation or religious observance that they have to have a private space for. We provide that for them. Um, common areas, so we have lounge spaces, um, lots of different meeting rooms with AV, TVs, whiteboards. You need to have a collaborative space to really think. You just don't want to be in a box and be sardined in. Large space where you can kind of um, really collaborate and connect with who you need to connect to. It's interesting because I think for many people, uh, the idea of a co-working space is very new to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, almost, you know, like, you know, how exactly does that work? And, and you know, they can't get their head wrapped around yeah. the idea of, of multiple businesses, multiple entities, multiple organizations, all under the same, not even under the same roof, but in many cases within re- arm's reach. Yeah. Of each other. It's pretty funny because when people usually come in and they kind of look around and they're just like, what is this space? You know, they see the people kind of going to meetings in the lounge, grabbing coffee, you know, sharing meals together. And we say it's a community. You know, it's not just an office. It's not just where I'm coming nine to five because in startup life, nine to five doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you're hitting the grind. Um, We have members that are coming in at 11 o'clock at night because they have to get a, you know, a dev build out or or whatever it is. Um, So when people come in, they really see it's not just how the space looks, but how the space feels. They see they feel the energy. They feel the collaboration of people really, um, you know, getting the work done, if, if that makes sense. Do you all have any vacancies now? Um, well, we're very excited because this spring we're actually expanding. Um, we are going to be a total of six floors of workspace, um, and we're going to be launching 20 new offices um, in the space uh, with more collaboration, lounge space, meeting rooms, kitchen. Um, and, you know, we're very excited to launch that space this spring. Where did the name Spark come from? So um, our parent company, the Cordish Companies, has been in Baltimore for over 100 years now. Um, so in 2014, 2015, how, they wanted to see how can they really support on the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Baltimore. And they had the spirit of entrepreneurship within their family-owned business. And hence, they wanted to launch Spark, um, sparking ideas, sparking creativity, innovation, um, getting away from just the stodgy old workspace. Um, And Baltimore has such um, a unique history, a unique charm to it. Um, So basically, that name of sparking innovation and making sure we're just keeping that that fire ignited in our city. And Baltimore has such a powerful entrepreneurial culture in it where, you know, it's, you know, Baltimore is not a city that's driven by the Fortune Ones or the Fortune Fives. Right. Baltimore is a city that's driven by the person with an interesting idea who then goes from three employees to 10 employees to 30 employees and continues to grow organically and hire Baltimoreans along those lines. And so you see how something like this kind of fits into the larger culture of the city. And that's what we call Baltimore small tomorrow, right? Yeah. I mean, you're you're one or two degrees of separation from someone who you can really collaborate with, who you can really grow your business with. Um, actually, we're, we're doing a series now of couples within our space in Baltimore, in, in Spark, who are growing their businesses together and growing their lives together. So I mean, you have that sort of function. But um, in, in Baltimore, the opportunity to collaborate is so um, unique and so attainable. Um, you don't see that in a lot of cities. Um, and we're sort of used to being, you know, hustle and, and, and gritty, and we got to get the work done, that we're not sort of tied up in some of the things that you see in other larger cities. It's very attainable here, as long as you're open to networking and connecting. And 
it's a strong community feel. Someone is always there and willing to want to help you or get you connected. Um, that will help support your goals. So talk to us about also the outreach that you all have and the percentage you now have of female entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color, et cetera. What role does diversity play in the makeup of Spark, and how do you see that going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's very important to us. I mean, when you look at our city and state, especially our city makeup in Baltimore, 40% of our companies are female or minority-owned businesses in our space. That's and impressive. That's a, when you look at some of the numbers of other spaces, um, uh, not, not just in Baltimore, but around the country, um, you don't really get that high of a number. Um, And for us, it's about being genuine and seeing what are your goals? How can we support you? It's not about just one part of Baltimore. It's about the the Baltimore as a whole. Um, We have community partners that we work with. We work with other organizations. There is actually a coalition in Baltimore that supports entrepreneurs, um, providing them with resources, space, um, programming. There's about 30 to 40 um, organizations that we make up that coalition and we're all working together for the betterment of our city. So when we get together with those groups, we take sort of that energy and make sure we're kind of pushing it throughout in our space at Spark. When you all are thinking about cities that are interesting models for you to watch as you're continuing to grow, as, as you're watching cities that have really taken on this culture of co-working, what are some cities that, that, uh, that are particularly appealing to you? I think we think about Baltimore, it comes back to the collaboration in the community of the city. We're very willing to, to support and help each other. So when we look at cities um, that Spark can go into, um, it's about those smaller cities that maybe they're flyover. Maybe they're, they're kind of um, looked over by the media or the rest of the nation. Um, maybe they don't get the capital that they deserve. So when we're looking at Spark and as we expand, um, going into cities that are a little sort of underdogs in a way, but they have the strive, they have the potential, they have the want, and they have the talent and the resources here. Um, so making sure that we're providing a space. Um, you may not see you know, a spark in, say, a big Silicon Valley or New York um, because the resources there are really saturated. We want to make sure that we're supporting communities and cities and states that have the drive and have the energy, um, hence why we're currently expanding to Kansas City, Missouri. Um, that'll be our second spark location out there. Um, when you think of Kansas City, you sort of think flyover Midwest, but when you hit the ground running there, the ecosystem is thriving. Um, and I, I kind of call it sister cities in a way. Mm. Uh, when Baltimore was up for Google Fiber about seven or eight years ago, um, kind of we're really championing that campaign, getting Google Fiber, we lost out to Kansas City. Hmm. So I've always been kind of um, not stalking them, but sort of <laughs> saying, okay, what's out there that, you know, what, what's been going? So for the past seven, eight years, I've been kind of keeping tabs on the KC. So when Spark, um, when we were looking to expand, what are some other cities you want to look to? Um, KC was a natural sort of sister city in that way. There's, um, They've done a lot with their infrastructure out there with that Google Fiber and, and have small companies, startups, businesses grow from that. And as we've been out there, as we've been looking to expand Spark to that space, those companies are so eager and so excited to partner with Baltimore, to our resources here, with the universities, with the the hospitals, with the startup community out here as well. Um, We have a few companies that are based in Baltimore that have gone to Kansas City and they're looking to build that bridge and bring more companies there. So um, it's interesting. So it's not just, you know, Baltimore. You're, you have that sort of that sort of connection with other communities and how we can grow that ecosystem. When you're looking at the future of Baltimore, let's say in three or five years out, 
How many businesses do you want calling Spark Home? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I would love to see. We're located in downtown Baltimore about a few blocks from the Inner Harbor. So I would love that to be a downtown innovation hub of some sort where companies are building their businesses. Maybe we have wet lab space. Maybe we have a skiff space for if you have a government contractor can come in and utilize um, that space. Really uh, an uh sort of an ecosystem within an ecosystem because yeah. Baltimore already has an established growing um, community, um, but something where you can really come and be a hub in the downtown space. And if people want to learn more or uh, take up some of those spaces uh, and create and build their dreams with Spark, how do they do it? Yeah, they can visit our website at uh, www.spark-bmore.com. Um, you're more than welcome to come in for a tour. We love giving tours of the space, and we're going to be showing off our new expansion here that's going to be launching this spring. This has been Siobhan Sherry, who's a director of community and partnerships at Spark Baltimore. Siobhan, this is so exciting and so good for the city. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So before we close this show out, I'd like to leave us with just a few thoughts. What if the dream is no longer the corner office? What if the dream is no longer the big space or where promotions are always accompanied by getting a door? What if that plate that has your name on it, that sits outside your office of employment, is no longer needed, required, or desired? And what if mission accomplishment, organizational mission accomplishment, was fostered by an integration, not by a separation? The rules of where we work and how we work are colliding, and our ability to use space as a statement is fully integrated into our preferred corporate culture. Our future city is one where success will be determined by our ability to stand out by fitting in, to work together and side by side to create opportunities and economic pathways for all. Future City is an original production of WYPR. The show airs the third Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. Find episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. Connect with me directly at I am Wes Moore on Twitter and Instagram. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. 